is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. I'm your host, Ryan Silverstein, and with me is... Megan Bojarski. So this episode about the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad closes out our second season, which was called War and Packages, and that spanned from 1943 through 1949, and was mostly made up of features made up of smaller pieces of animation or smaller stories and two hybrid films in Song of the South and So Dear to My Heart. So as is our... It's the second time we've done it, but as is our custom, we'll kind of do a recap of the season and our feelings of these movies as a whole when we get to the end. But I feel like we do have enough to discuss with these two fabulous characters, as this package film was originally known, as the title may or may not indicate to you, which is a strange title no matter how you slice it. The Mr. Toad in the title is from Wind in the Willows. Ichabod refers to Ichabod Crane in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, so this is like two literary adaptations, which kind of makes it a bridge between this and our next season, which will be called Adventures in Literature, because there's a lot more uh, literary adaptations to come from Disney. But here we are. This felt like the right place to break because it's the last package film for 27, 37 years till The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh comes out. And so, like I said, this is a good place to end the season. This is why we're ending it here. Megan, had you seen either of these segments before? Because this is one where like the individual pieces have gotten released separately as often as they've been released together, I feel like. Yeah, so I think that with this one, I hadn't seen either of the full shorts, but I think I've seen like the specific chase in the Sleepy Hollow portion. I have like a recollection of the Headless Horseman throwing the pumpkin head but I absolutely did not remember all of the stuff that led up to that. So yes and no, I definitely hadn't seen like the full thing. This for me is one of my favorites, especially The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is a story that I enjoy very much. I have actually been to Sleepy Hollow and seen Washington Irving's uh, house at Sunnyside. But one of the benefits of living in the Northeast, things are not that far away. So this movie is kind of an annual watch in my house. Some years we will just watch the Sleepy Hollow portion, but often because it's only an hour and nine minutes, we'll watch both portions because I do enjoy both uh, very well. And so with the sort of genesis of the project, the Wind of the Willows, of course, is based on the 1908 children's novel by British author Kenneth Graham, uh, who also was the author of The Reluctant Dragon that we talked about several episodes ago. And the second segment is based on the 1820 short story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, by American author Washington Irving. And I hadn't really paid attention attention to it before, but the the contrast between the British front half and the American 
back half actually feels like fairly significant and very purposeful. I don't know. Some of the sources argue that like it was poorly done, that they they clash because of that. But I kind of liked the perhaps this is one of the rare cases where I'll say that they should have added the live action talking bits beforehand. I think it would have been cool if we had just seen two minutes of the narrators essentially bickering about whether America or Britain was better, which gives us just a little bit more framing into it. Because I liked the transition where after we had kind of gone through the wind in the willows, they kind of went, oh, but we have cool things in America too. Name drop a bunch of things that were in Melody time. That was a pretty good transition, I think. But I I think that it could have been just a little better if they had had arguing or bickering in the beginning. I don't think these two men were ever in the same room together when they recorded it, but it it would have added just a little touch, I think, to the flow of those two different kind of cultural elements. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I've never thought of it as clumsy or lacking in any way because I think the transition is actually pretty clean, but I do think a little bit of a wraparound or or mid-film segment about this being an argument as to like who has the better stories would be actually kind of a fun, a fun way to sort of illustrate the concept of it. So the rights to the wind in the willows, as well as Winnie the Pooh were acquired in 1938, shortly after the release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, when Walt had access to probably more cash than he had access at any time other up to this point, James Badrero And Campbell Grant pitched to Walt Disney the idea of making a feature film based on the book. Walt Disney was skeptical, however, and said it would be, quote, awful corny, which has he seen so dear to my heart? (laughs) (laughs) But acquired the rights in April of that same year. To be fair, no, he hadn't seen so dear to my heart at that point, because this is, you know, a good 10 years before that. So little did Walt know how corny he was going to get in the (laughs) preceding decade. Precisely. I have not read The Wind in the Willows. I understand that this makes some changes to the text itself. I believe Cyril is an original character to this adaptation. But some of the major changes, you know, in this version, Toad is accused of theft, which he didn't. Uh, but in the book, he apparently crashed seven cars, was in the hospital three times, had spent a fortune on fines, which we do see alluded to in the movie. He had ordered lunch at the Red Lion Inn and then sees a motor car pull into the courtyard. Taking the car, he drives it recklessly, is caught by the police, and is sent to prison for 20 years. I guess for reckless driving, even though this this description does imply that he stole that car. And so, I, I, I don't know. I Like I said, not being familiar with the story, I do enjoy the character lineup. I find Toad to be very, very funny and cute. Like, they're just named Toad and Rat and Mole, but then you have McBadger, which I think <laughs> is kind of a fun... like. Like, he is a Scottish badger. Mm -hmm. I think that they've got some kind of fun character work. It is a little... I'm going to say this with literally every, like, anthropomorphic animal thing. It's a little weird when we see, like, human cops chasing a toad, and both of them can operate trains. So there's some weird stuff going there. I, I do kind of love that they were like, Scottish is a whole other thing. We need everything to show that he's Scottish. The one thing about that actually doesn't make any sense to me is that, like, clearly Rat lives in a rat-sized house when Mole comes to visit him for tea. 
but Toad Hall is human sized, yet we occupied by a family of frogs, which are, you know, tech usually even smaller than rats. So like that's a big project to undertake for toads. Okay, so here's my theory. This is a terrible theory. It's not a good one, but it's it's fun, which is all that matters. My theory is that this is a Stuart Little situation. This was the home of humans, and they just happened to adopt a toad child. And then this toad, who could conveniently speak, or maybe was taught by his adoptive parents, you know, made it, and now it's it's been passed down in the family. This is the toad version of, like, five generations down from Stuart Little. That's That's my argument for how this makes any sense. I'll take it, honestly. And I like that, you know, at some point they, like, maybe it was named Toad Hall after the original Toad that was adopted. And then the, the human family maybe didn't, you know, have any kids or something like that. And they left it all to to, to the, the Toad. And that's what's been, that, that's the legacy of this family. Have you ever heard the story of the tree that owns itself? I have not. So there's a tree, I don't remember where, but essentially this guy really loved this tree. I think he planted it in childhood or something like that. And so in his will, he deeded the tree and the land it was on to the tree. And legally speaking, the tree owned itself. The tree did eventually die, but a new tree was planted with an acorn from the original tree. So it's the son of the tree that owned itself. So there are laws for like hereditary passing down of property to non-humans so i've got to figure it's something like that but i do like to think that the human family's last name was toad and they just Mm. thought it would be really funny to deed all of their all of their property to an actual toad so maybe the original toad was like the family mascot and then like who like became a part of the family and then they were like you know what we're gonna leave it to this talking toad and hope that down the line our you know great 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 grand toad doesn't become addicted (laughs) to wild adventures i think that's the only plausible explanation for all of this and then on the other side the legend of sleepy hollow is a very famous story i couldn't find a source that like an actual like source for this information but according to several sources i consulted walt disney personally visited uh tarrytown which is Sleepy Hollow is like a, just like a, almost like a neighborhood. It's like a village within the larger town of Tarrytown. They renamed it Sleepy Hollow in like the two like the late nineties, two thousands to try to capitalize on on tourism. But Tarrytown is the name of the larger, the actual like municipality. And so uh, apparently, Walt Disney visited there to do research and get a sense of the location and the background and everything. You know, the filmmakers also researched music of the colonial period so that the music in that segment at least at least acknowledges what music would have sounded like, even though it is very much a Bing Crosby uh, production throughout. <laughs> it must be noted that Mary Blair, as featured in the credits, worked on the concept art, and she absolutely brought autumn New England to life. And one of my favorite things about that segment is just the vibes are just so perfect. Yeah, I definitely think that, like, And this was probably established before this, but this is one of those early entries that kind of establish New England's fall as, like, the aesthetic of Halloween. 
And this is a, a classic Halloween short, which is kind of funny because the vast majority of it has absolutely nothing to do with that. I think that definitely capturing that aesthetic of, of fall and the leaves and the way that the trees work differently than areas that are, you know, a lot of evergreens, all of that is is really well captured from my own experience in New York. I don't know. I, I feel like there are other parts where it's a little harder to to fully capture it, especially when they're like in houses. But certainly the outdoor scenes really kind of capture the vibe. And moving on to the production, at, at one point during the 1940s, James Alger, who is somewhat infamous as we will eventually talk about when we get to some of the nature documentaries, was appointed to direct this film. By April of 1941, work on The Wind of the Wolves had begun as the animators and writers had come off from Bambi, uh, which was almost done by that point. Our favorite, like, I don't want to say villain, but like our favorite antagon recurring antagonist on this podcast, the Bank of America, issued an ultimatum in October of 1941, which would permit a, a loan limit of $3.5 million. And in return... The studio was ordered to restrict itself to producing animated shorts and to finish features in production, namely Dumbo, Bambi, and The Wind of the Willows. But no other feature film could begin work until those had been released and earned back their costs. At that point, Walt decides to shelve The Wind of the Willows, deciding that, quote, the quality was far below the standard necessary to be successful on the market. And then after the strike happens, When the Willows was one of the only features that the bank allowed Walt to work on, but again, he had chilled at that point, telling Roy Disney that Peter Pan would likely have a similar budget, but be a better box office draw. And then that got put on hold, like yes. everything else from this period. And thus we get the package films. So there's some choice quotes, I think, from the production of this, <laughs> of these two shorts slash one feature that you found, Megan. So from Jack Kinney. Quote, I never liked Ichabod and I didn't like it right from the start because I was working with Carl and Frank Thomas. And I always felt that Crane should have been a loose goose. And instead of that, he came out with the most beautiful walks and stuff. And it wasn't funny, period. He had no character. He was just a guy who moved beautifully. This quote is wild to me. Because I think that I think Ichabod Crane is a funny character. I think that one of the things with Ichabod is that, especially now, now that we kind of have the, the Disney-ified idea of what a good guy and a bad guy looks like, Ichabod is not a good guy. He mm -hmm. does not look like what we are supposed to be rooting for. He he has the nose that reminds me of what, you know, Severus Snape was supposed to be in the books. We've got kind of the, the long, lanky kind of skeletal look. I don't know. I feel like he's funny mostly because of the situations he gets into. I don't know that he inherently is funny, like in the way he walks and moves. I do like that this was like a repeated problem during the production that they're just like, I don't know, is he walking too pretty? Like, do we want him to be graceful? I feel like he should trip over his own feet. That kind of plays with that war that we talked about, you know, so many episodes ago at this point of like, do we want to go for gags on gags on gags? Or do we want to go for, you know, high art kind of style? Yeah, and I, I do feel like both of these ultimately balance that pretty well. But what I like about Ichabod, and I think one of the tricky things about Ichabod Crane as a character in any adaptation of which there have obviously been many, is that you need him to be 
foolish enough to be ridiculed by most of the men in the town, but attractive enough where he is actually a potential match for Katrina Van Tassel. And it's, it's a fine line to walk. And I think that him looking more funny and sort of looking gangly, but actually ended up, but be actually being graceful in practice ends up working really well. And I think especially in the scenes where like he and Brom are sort of facing off directly and like, you know, he's giving Brom all the different packages to hold and like he falls down. It's like rolling on what I guess are raw potatoes. <clears throat> that becomes funny because Brom is not used to being in that position. Like the, I feel like the juxtaposition works better. And I think to your point in context, Ichabod might be funnier than just like if you saw him by himself. Ichabod is at his best when he is kind of compared to the other figures around him, which is maybe a shame because he's not around the other characters all that often, which is one of my gripes in general for this. But I think that he and Brom definitely have a good interplay. My problem was, this is silly, it's also definitely a, you know, wouldn't have been a problem in the time. Excluding Ichabod being who he is, it really felt like Beauty and the Beast to me. Because, you know, you have the most beautiful girl in town, and then the guy that everyone finds gorgeous and stunning, and he's, you know, a bit of a jerk. And I just, I kept getting vaguely distracted by, like, the Belle and Gaston of it all. But we just randomly have Ichabod instead of the Beast. One, you're not wrong, because the animators working on Beauty and the Beast model Gaston after Brom Bones in this feature. I don't know. So, so that is 100% on point. Excellent perception on your part. But again, I think that, that juxtaposition or that sort of twist on that is, is sort of core to the original story. Like that, all, all those elements are in the original story. And I think with Disney's sort of house style and especially having watched Make My Music and Melody Time with the, I'm never going to remember what the fake families are called, but the Hatfields and McCoys short mm-hmm. and the Pecos Bill short, the Sleepy Hollow adaptation here is done in a very similar art style to those. And I guess you could also put Johnny Appleseed in there in terms of like the way the human characters look and move and behave. And so I think having that really sort of classic, large, strong chin but actually making him the bully and then making this like more weird, you know, gangly, lanky Ichabod Crane. Not, he's not the hero. Cause like, again, to your point, he's not a, he's not a good person. Like he's a school teacher that very much is just like, I'm going to grift the, the, the local parents for as much food as I possibly can. It's his main motive. I do like the ambiguity as to is Ichabod into Katrina because he's in love with her or is he in her for her dad's money? And I like the way that the story sort of plays with that and doesn't give a firm answer, but certainly wants to make us think about, you know, her dad's fortune. Mm -hmm. Might have been a little better if we could have seen like an interplay more with the dad and like, how does he treat him? And is it more of a like, I want all of your money or or more of a like, I love your daughter so much. Although they do play heavily into the idea that they've done with a lot of female characters in this period, which is basically like, if you're hot, everyone will just follow you around and do whatever it takes to be with you, which is a little a little overdone. Yeah, I think that there's some really interesting questions that 
come from the source material of like is this money love a combination i think the the short seems to call it a combination he certainly was daydreaming enough in his class while the students ran around causing trouble yeah and i I like that even earlier than that you know when they allude to like spare the rod spoil the child and he's like well i would spank this kid for drawing a picture of me as like a goose but on the other hand this kid brings really good food to school (laughs) and like i want to be on good terms with his parents and i do think it's really interesting that both of these shorts rely more on narration than dialogue Mm -hmm. which i think could make them feel sleepy to some people like more just kind of low low energy but to me i think because they're both rooted in adaptation i feel like we're not not that they're using the original text i don't know how much if any of the original text they're actually using but it feels like you're being told a story and the illustrations in the story are moving along with with that story and I think that they were very much relying on these celebrity narrators that they had in Basil Rathbone and Bing Crosby. It was their names, but also just, you know, how much of them can we insert into this without it losing some of the narrative flow that would be done from a more dialogue heavy short. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's so funny because there there's so many times in these where like the narrator is not somebody I'm familiar with. I know Basil Rathbone because I've seen The Adventures of Robin Hood and a few of his other movies that he's been in. Obviously, I know from I know Bing Crosby just from being in a house that celebrates Christmas in America because Bing Crosby is a huge part of it. And like we watched White Christmas every year. And I don't know when I realized that Bing that like it was the same voice doing this Halloween thing as a voice I'd normally associate with Christmas. But I think it does add something because audiences at the time certainly would have been familiar with both voices. And I think from a like marketing perspective, it really helps to sell it because you have these. I mean, I often complain about how all voice casting and animated movies is now like celebrity stunt casting. This is one of the first times where it really feels like that. Obviously, like Dinosaur and others had already been involved in some of these shorts, the Andrew sisters, who are also in White Christmas with Bing Crosby. But I think it works here. And I think both of them add a really nice quality to the story. Like, I feel like their voices suit the mood of the stories being told. When we were going through our first couple of Disney films, I brought up often that we started with the storybook. And this is something that obviously Disney continues doing. I mean, the frame story for this movie is two guys telling each other and some audience stories. And it works very well here because it's not intended to be these celebrities playing characters, these celebrities just telling you a comforting or interesting or, or sometimes scary story. It, it really does work out that way. I think that maybe part of that comes down to how much trouble Disney was having trying to figure out what they were doing, specifically with Wind in the Willow and to a lesser extent with Sleepy Hollow. According to a lot of the different sources in this period of time, Walt was basically throwing different people on and off of projects, kind of at random. They were really trying to find their magic formula, and so people were switched in and out over and over. Of course, with this film in particular, we have a really big break of pre-war and post-war. So according to Walt Disney and American Original, I just love this quote, A favorite studio legend concerns the animator who was assigned to Wind in the Willows, departed to serve in the army, 
then returned four years later to resume animating the same sequence in the same film. There was so much going on to get the pieces together here. And I think that to some extent, adding those voices and having those narrators be these really recognizable kind of soothing figures really helped kind of pull the maybe disjointed pieces a little bit more tightly together. And both of these struggled with the push and pull between being a feature on their own or being a short. So Frank Thomas has this great quote around The Wind of the Willows saying it was about 47 minutes. And as I recall, the thing just sparkled. Everyone was so high on it. It was funny. It was warm. It had great characters. And it just went. And we said, here's our picture. And you put it into work. And naturally, it's going to expand to the hour 10 hour 15 but he says quote as you expanded it it got soggy and it got heavy and it slowed up and it lost all of that brightness that it had nobody knew why to this day nobody knows why and i think the running time of both actually really just works for the stories like they feel like they're the right length for the stories that they're telling and the the wind the willow segment is like just enough like i feel like if it was longer i would start to get bored with it but I feel like it's telling its segments, like it's spending enough time on each part. So like the beginning where we're setting up what's going on with Toad and his following around with Cyril and then his obsession with motor cars and Badger trying to deal with the finances, you know, and then we get to the, the second segment with like Toad on trial. And then we have sort of the like escape from prison and then the big fight with the weasels at the end. And then like the sort of gag ending epilogue sort of at the end. And I feel like, there isn't a place to add more to that story without losing sight of what the actual through line is. You know, it really works. And maybe if they hadn't made the change to make, you know, the characters more sympathetic, if they had stuck with Toad just causes problems. And I think that you could have fit in the fact that, what was it? He wrecked like seven cars or something. Is that Mm -hmm. what it was? Seven cars had been in the hospital three times and then was driving another one recklessly. I think if they had put all of that in there, that might have been a way to make it last longer, but you would have lost the kind of joy of the character. Personally speaking, Ode would drive me nuts because I'm the kind of person that just knows I'm going to be the one cleaning up the messes. I am definitely the McBadger of this situation. So I would just be going insane. But I think as the story kind of points out, there's something attractive to us about a character that just does what they want and can be free in the way that Toad is. If they had tried to expand that, I think they would have had to make him a darker character where it's not, you know, he's free and he's funny, but it's it's, he's killing people with vehicular manslaughter and it just would have been a a completely different story. I like that we get just a little bit of of Toad and Cyril sort of rampaging around the countryside. Because again, if you did more of it, it would also just get repetitive. And then you set up the Weasels and uh, Winky as the actual villains of the story. And that, again, there's like just enough of them in there. Like the little wink that Winky gives Toad before he takes the stand and then, you know, perjures himself. It's just, it's very well done. Like all of the pieces are there. And even, you know, Cyril on the stand and, and him speaking almost entirely in rhyme for his entire testimony is just like all of it's really fun, but it is the kind of fun that would overstay its welcome. And Toad is right on that borderline of being like a really fun character versus being a really annoying character. 
One of the things that kind of came to my mind, and chronologically we're still in the pre-war period, but as they were finishing this and getting it ready for production, that's the time that Walt put down his rules of, you know, everything has to be kind of pre-planned and we need to really stick to the budget. If they had gotten this so long and then they had to shorten it, they had to cut out so many of the things they added, I imagine this was kind of the token example of plan it before you start animating it because they would have had to get rid of so much material spend so much money just to get kind of the clean quick pace story that i think did work better than something any longer than that would have it's also interesting once that new process really takes hold that process is not broken until the late 80s when jeffrey katzenberg comes in and is watching the black cauldron and is like we need to edit this, we need to cut this, we need to change this. And everybody at the studio was like, you can't edit animation. Like we do the edit, the editing is called storyboards. Like once we lock that in, then we go and draw it and then it's done. You know, like we don't really have the time or budget to go back. And so like this planning becomes more and more rigid. And I think we're coming out of this period where, you know, in our first season, everything that we talked about was like, do it as many times as it takes to get it right. Uh, with the exception of Dumbo, where it was like, do it as cheap as you can, but like everybody just seemed to be really locked in on what they wanted to do with that movie. And we're in this, this season is more about like, how cheaply can we get this done? How quickly can we get this done? What can we actually put out there that might resonate with the public? And it's kind of interesting with how long Wind of the Wills especially seems to sort of gestate, because again, they really started working on it in 1938. It doesn't come out until 1949. You know, as we pick up after the war, there are a lot of changes to it. So it resumes production in 1946. Frank Thomas comes back from World War II. He was assigned to direct the additional footage alongside Alger in hopes of like basically salvaging what they had. Walt ordered it to be shortened down to 25 minutes. But again, the project was shelved in August of 1946 following layoffs. As... Jane Kinney said, like, the man you need to ask is no longer around, and that's Walt. Walt was a tremendous salesman, and he seemed to have a built-in sense of what was sellable at the time. And for some reason, The Wind of the Willows just didn't seem to hit for him. It is interesting to me, think like, trying to, you know, divine Walt's thought process as to, like, what makes a thing like, you know, Bongo, like, that sellable versus, like, The Wind in the Willows, which, like, is a fair... I mean... I feel like it's a fairly well-known story. Like, it's a thing that a lot of people have read, even if they hadn't seen this adaptation. I often get it mixed up with Frog and Toad, I feel like, mm-hmm. in my head, because they just have, like, similar vibes to me. But, you know, it's adorable creatures sitting around drinking tea and dealing with weasels. Like, uh, you know, it's it seems like an evergreen thing, and it's just really interesting that this was the one where Walt's like, I'm not really sure about this concept. This is, you know, it's... I believe the longest from start to finish until we get to Alice in Wonderland, which far beats it. And they had four years to think about it before even returning to the actual work of it. And yet I think that Walt was just sitting there going, it's it's not there yet. And that's very in line with what we talked about with So Dear to My Heart, where he took a year for him to be like, yeah, sure, that's that's good enough. I don't know if that goes back to the genius of Walt Disney, as we like to frequently believe, or if it was more about his uncertainty. We've talked a few times about the fact that he 
seemed really confused about where the studio was going. Let's do educational stuff. Never mind, I don't want to do that. I'll help corporate. No, I to give them their money. I don't want to do that. I want to record a bunch of seals in Alaska, but I also want to keep doing this. And I think that it's definitely a question of when Walt said it wasn't enough, was it truly not enough? Was it truly not where it needed to be? Or was it just that Walt didn't have his kind of guiding arrow that he seemed to have so strongly in those first, you know, three, arguably, you know, five features? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when we talk about something that is not one of Walt's babies, you know, like I feel like Snow White, Fantasia, even more than Pinocchio, Song of the South, So Dear to My Heart, like these are things we know that Walt was heavily invested in. And some of the other stuff, maybe less so. And so it's interesting to kind of track that over this and maybe why it sort of took so long to come out and had this long production process. According to Johnson and Thomas, all the train-related scenes were added after the war, along with more jokes and gangs, uh, which I think the movie is also really funny, which does balance out kind of the darker elements of the story. And so according to Thomas, he says, quote, we started out not co-directing uh, so much as salvaging walt said like let's see what we got here put it together redo what we need to do see what it looks like so they come back to walt and he goes it still doesn't hold up and but he has some new ideas for it and also wanted to cut it down in time they keep going back and forth and back and forth with with walt and eventually they get to the point where they're like okay we're going to start cutting out the good part like the parts we know are good to try to convince walt to keep it at the length we think it needs to be and of course, like Walt catches on immediately and he's like, come on, you guys are like, you're not doing you're you're not doing what I'm asking you to do. You're cutting out the stuff that, you know, needs to be in this movie for it to work. I think that to some extent, that was a really good idea that you wanted to. OK, fine. Walt keeps saying cut stuff. Let's see what happens when we cut something he doesn't want us to. Kind of a side effect of that possibly, is that Thomas was actually pulled off the project. So again, this had kind of gone back and forth and back and forth. And so many other projects, they were kind of trying to put all the pieces together. So Thomas was thrown into working on Johnny Appleseed from Melody Time. And they said, no, because from there, it sort of lagged for a while. Then they put Kimball on it and Jack Kinney. They decided to put in the railroad chase it was too much of the even pace just going along. And essentially, they just kept trying to find a way to make it work. And as Thomas went on to say, I don't think it was shelved, but it sure hit a low spot there where Walt wasn't satisfied with it and didn't know what to do with it. It could have been that everybody dropped it. It just seemed like they kept trying. They knew there were some really good gems in there, but it just because of how Walt was running the company and because the war changes things. People aren't wanting the same things. And we saw with Song of the South that Disney did not catch that change in you know, the industry. They were really trying to find that perfect sweet spot and they were struggling. Yeah, and I think, you know, we talked about Walt sort of being a little bit backward looking or nostalgic as well as being forward looking. And there, this really is a not just at the Disney studio, but the whole country is trying to figure out what direction to head in after the war. And it really doesn't find its footing until almost the, the time this movie comes out. 
So in December of 1946, they now start production on another new anime feature film, the adaptation of Legends of Sleepy Hollow, which was to be co-directed by Jack Kinney and Clyde Jaranimi. I think that's right. Again, we have this sort of like, let's start a new project. The character design of Ichabod Crane is sort of a sticking point. According to Frank Thomas, Walt has always felt that Ichabod would be more loose-jointed or funnier-looking or funnier-moving or something, and yet nearly all the top guys did a scene here and there, and none of them came up with what he was looking for. He wasn't able to communicate it to us before we started, in contrast to other times when he knew exactly what he wanted and would guide you and inspire you. And I think that says so much about Walt in this time period, where he really doesn't have a direction of what he wants, and that makes everything harder. Around the same time, there's a decision to combine The Wind of the Willows and The Legend of Happy Valley, which later becomes Mickey and the Beanstalk, as we talked about in our Fun and Fancy Free episode. And The Gremlins, which was an original story developed by author Rod Dahl, into a package film titled Three Fabulous Characters. The Gremlins didn't really come together, which is a story for another time. The title was then changed to Two Fabulous Characters. And then The Legend of Happy Valley was cut from the project in favor of pairing it with Bongo. That becomes fun and fancy free in 1947. And then also in 1947, Disney decides to pair Sleepy Hollow and Wind of the Willows into a singular package film. Neither was going to work as a full feature. There really just wasn't enough material in either of these stories to carry on a hour and 10 minute feature by themselves. So they, sort, they get pulled together. There's a decent amount of cost-cutting, actually, especially in Sleepy Hollow. According to D23, expenses were lowered by reusing animation cycles from the old mill and by patterning uh, Katrina Van Tassel closely on Grace from the Martins and the Coys. There's a little bit of uh, Slewfoot Sue, I feel like, in her also. And I think this reuse of animation, which Disney will do from time to time, there's famous examples from the animated Robin Hood, especially that has a lot of animation reuse and you know we'll talk more about what that means on a technical level it basically means like tracing and, and just copying over pre-existing work but changing enough of it to make it feel original and you really have to see it side by side in most examples to actually see it but they are already looking for ways to cut costs but i also think this contributes to what i think of a sort of the disney house style where we talked about in the 40s and even in a lot of these package films the style tends to vary a lot depending on the kind of story that they're telling, depending on what art style is right for that story. And I feel like here we're starting to like coalesce into this sort of house style where the art looks enough of the same, where people can be, you know, brought on and dropped off projects sort of here and there. We'll say that one point where I think you can definitely see the cost cutting, and I know You've told me individually and you've said on here that you love this movie and especially the Sleepy Hollow portion. I think it's very good in certain parts, but I go back, uh, funnily enough, to our first episode and when we were talking about, was it the, the Tortoise and the Hare adaptation? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was really excited about was they had a crowd of 50 people and every single one of them was changing. I mean, not necessarily in every frame, but you could watch, you know, the tortoise walk across the screen and that giant gallery in the back is people moving, changing, doing things. And that's definitely not true in Sleepy Hollow. There is an entire frame of the dancing where the people in the background are in the exact same position, just staring uh, for probably two or three seconds. 
which doesn't sound like much, but it's a little bit unnerving that there's all of these like slack faced people staring just straight out. And you can kind of see that they really took advantage of the multiplane camera that they could just have that background stay the same. I think that that definitely showed a little bit of progression in some of the technical sides that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years at Disney. Like we said, a lot of it comes down to budget and finances. And one of the things I keep I keep sort of reminding myself with animation is that when you're shooting a scene live action, your only expense for shooting longer for a particular scene is like the physical cost of the film that has to go through the camera. You can do either an extra take or like, oh, like let's extend the scene a little bit and then you can sort of refine it in the edit. Whereas animation, every frame that you draw is an extra cost. And it's like, you know, all that stuff adds up. And I think maybe why I don't notice that stuff in this movie is because I've seen it so many times since I was a little kid. And even as a kid, like, I would notice the difference between, between, like, Flintstones animation or, like, Hanna-Barbera stuff where, like, you know, Fred and Barney would be, like, driving their car and you would, like, see the background repeat three times in the course of a scene that was less than a minute. And so this still looks better than that. And so I think part of that is just that sort of, like, experience of, like, this being better than something I was I would watch every day, but, you know, clearly not as good as, like, the Aladdins and Beauty and the Beast and Snow Whites of the world. So, like, I do think that there's a bit of a maybe grading on a curve for me. But I, I also think, again, like, there, there's a lot of stuff that I find charming about the Sleepy Hollow stuff. But I, I will acknowledge that, yeah, clearly they're trying to cut costs where they can. Part of that is the music. So The Wind in the Willows only has two songs. The Merrily song, which is a bop, honestly. <laughs> that was one that was on a Disney sing-along tape that I had and definitely was one, like, it'll get stuck in your head if you, like, hear it a couple times. And it has Old Anxiety, which is, you know, used at the very end for the New Year scene, and it's just, like, it's not an original song. And then The Legend of Sleepy Hollow has three songs, all performed by Bing Crosby and his group. So there's the Ichabod Crane song that introduces the main character. There's Katrina, which is more of a, I would say, a lovesick ballad more than a love ballad. And then there's the Headless Horseman song, which also just a total bop. That is a <laughs> on my Halloween playlist. Although I have the Thurl Ravencroft version because the Bing Crosby version is not terribly easy to find in digital form. But the Thurl Ravencroft version got a actual release on one of the many, many Disney compilations that are out there. And it's very interesting, the difference between the two, because the Bing Crosby version emphasizes a lot of the humor as well. I mean, the visuals help with it because we see Brahm sort of like doing, you know, making his feet, fingers into horns and things. Whereas the Thurl Ravencroft version, you may know him as the, the voice of your mean one, Mr. Grinch. Uh, definitely hmm. and emphasizes more the sinister aspect of the Headless Horseman song. I'm definitely going to have to download that one. That was certainly my favorite. I will say, and this is completely my own mind and could be completely wrong. I think there's one point when Ichabod is kind of beating Brahm for Katrina's love, where he just starts kind of happily humming. And I swear, it, it got stuck in my head and I kept looping it until words came to me. This could be completely wrong. It probably is completely wrong, but it 
to me sounded like it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, which is very out of place in our very Halloween themed episode. But I will say, despite the pumpkins, there is nothing that states this is in October and the toad is certainly around Christmas. So perhaps that is a continuity that few people have noticed or I'm just insane, which is, you know, just as likely. I think there is a line in the Headless Horseman song that mentions it being Halloween. Yeah, it, it is a it is a Halloween party that they're at, at in the, the Sleepy Hollow. I, like I said, I think there's just a line in the song itself that establishes that, but it it feels like it could just be a generic sort of harvest, you know, barn dance gathering. I will say that having been in New York in October, it often around Halloween does start to look like Christmas. So that doesn't necessarily negate my weird... I have a lot of weird theories for this movie, I guess. Well, and Big Crosby d- does sing a very well-known version of it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. So it's, it is also just very possible that he slipped that in there. Uh, I have to admit, I will often occasionally just break into a ba-ba-ba-boom-boom. <laughs> that Ichabod does randomly because I don't really know why, but I think I just think it's very funny. It it always amuses me. So I will occasionally throw that out. Just knowing if someone is familiar enough with this to understand what I'm what I'm referencing. But I do think it's it's funny how musical Ichabod is as a character. And you know, we see him teaching some of the local ladies trying to be a choir, and you know, then Brahm is trying to sabotage and thing. Um I just enjoy his his musicality and, like I said, just Bing Crosby's general presence in this. Like, it really does feel like a Bing Crosby thing, and it almost is surprising this is the only time that he worked with the Disney studio. It definitely seems like they could have done more together, especially as there were, you know, more wintry kinds of movies coming out. So one of the things that I think kind of ties in with the music, and this is, you know, again, pure speculation, There was kind of a a discourse that went around the internet a few years ago that was talking about, like, the male gaze versus the female gaze of what, like, the most attractive man is. Uh, I know this sounds like a, a weird deviation, but the argument was that Hugh Jackman is the ideal man, um, but that for men, they think Wolverine is, like, the most attractive version. And women that like Hugh Jackman as somebody who loves being in musicals and dancing is the most attractive version of him. And I feel like that kind of plays into why Ichabod has that charm. As you pointed out, he does a lot with the ladies of the town, whether it's letting them feed him or or him teaching them choir and that kind of thing. And I think that there's definitely an element of like the traditionally, you know, softer man is appealing to women in a way that a character like Brahm, who terrifies all of Katrina's suitors away, just kind of can't be, just because he is is too aggressive. And Ichabod has the sweet, fun musical side that's just a little bit kind of safer and more comforting. I think that's a really interesting point, especially as someone who is a noted fan of James Mangold's excellent movie, Kate and Leopold, which has... A, it's a great Hugh Jackman rom-com. I get that. And and again, I think that is part of what makes this movie so much fun 
is that sort of juxtaposition between Ichabod and Brahm and how, you know, sort of stereotypically masculine Brahm Bones is and how Ichabod does not fit that at all, you know, both in physical body type as well as personality and interest. And you can sort of tease out that he's like the the schoolmaster who thinks better of himself. You know, we see that he has like holes in his socks and doesn't have a lot of money, but, you know, he dresses better than than Brahm does you know he except at the party like Brahm does finally put on like a nice jacket and respectable clothes but Ichabod dresses a little fancy and like you know sort of comes off in a a a more dandy way that I think is just interesting putting him at in this love triangle just is, is a very fun and interesting dynamic especially for this you know, the, the time period, both when this was made and when it takes place. There's a lot of kind of interesting interplays with that. And as we talked about Beauty and the Beast before, and I think that the part of Ichabod that maybe gets into Gaston is how much he eats, because I could definitely see Ichabod eating six dozen eggs a day, given how much <laughs> he seems obsessed with the women who cook in town. So maybe that got transferred in to that particular movie. I think it fits very well to continue to play with this idea that, you know, being the, you know, strong He-Man type isn't necessarily the best, the perfect style, uh, which maybe was something that animators and artists would have liked to be able to present in a time when all of the men were coming back from war. Maybe that was kind of their own message to the women of their time to enjoy the artist as well as the soldier. Because one of the things that I think we do see is that although there isn't that much music in this movie, the music was part of how they sold it. The release was kind of a a weird, interesting thing. Roy was in kind of a war with RKO, which is going to continue to expand as we go on. But he was arguing that they weren't doing a good job at distribution, that they were kind of contributing to the studio's financial struggles. And Part of this was that RKO actually originally refused to distribute this film at the time that it was called The Two Fabulous Characters. And so I think that Roy was very interested in kind of expanding the ways that this movie could make money, one of which was having Decca Records issue an album called Ichabod, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow that had Bing Crosby tie into the film and use, you know, some of these songs that are really fun that are kind of bops that kind of drew in extra audiences drew in some extra money and then of course they released it in early october october 5th of 1949 which gave kind of a good setup for sleepy hollow's legacy as a halloween classic and really just kind of building up the idea that you know disney was still bringing music to the foreground they were still able to define a sensation uh in this case you know fear and halloween and spooky season and autumnal aesthetics even though i have my gripes and you can definitely tell that there was some any pinching going on here they were still able to really push the idea through the release that this was another big success for disney i think you see that reflected in the reviews at the time too it seems like a lot of people are just relieved that Disney made an animated, a fully animated movie again. So from the New York Times, quote, as a craftsman who had strayed slightly from his chosen field, Walt Disney's to be congratulated on his return to the realm of pure animation in the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. 
they go on to say that the supporting cast of live players is refreshingly absent and it has the winsome qualities and charm of such creations as Mickey Mouse and Dumbo. You also see that reflected in the Variety review, calling saying that it, quote, ranks among the best full-length cartoons turned out by Walt Disney Studios, and that they are cutting away from the limitations imposed by the usage of live actors in several of his recent efforts. Disney, once again, is banking on that wit, inventiveness, and whimsical imagination that marked his early successes. So it is kind of interesting even though there are some that, that call it a bit uneven. You know, Time says that it neatly illustrates some of Disney's outstanding vices and virtues. I do think that it's clear that this is viewed as sort of a return to form. And I feel like that may be you know, spurred on what's going to come next because there's this comes out in October of 1949, not too many months after you know, Cinderella is coming out in February of the next year. And so I feel like this is, is kind of like paving the way for, you know, Disney's full return to glorious full-length animation with Cinderella. And for all the struggles in production, it does feel like this was kind of a stepping stone. I think that, and we're going to talk about this a lot in the Cinderella episode, that, you know, Disney, as we've said a few times, they had already started a lot of different projects. We had, you know, Peter Pan in the works. We had Lady and the Tramp in the works. We had many of these Alice in Wonderland, these classic movies that won't come out for another, you know, five to 10 years at this point. And I think that the choosing of Cinderella was in part motivated by seeing what the reviews connected with in this return to form for Disney. One of my personal favorite quotes from that Variety review was, Quote, the sequence in which Ichabod meets the Headless Horseman in the forest, incidentally, matches anything Disney has ever done in the way of terrorizing the younger set, <laughs> which is just a fantastic quote, because it is very similar, I would say, to Snow White, where Snow is kind of running around the forest and seeing monsters in everything. It does it in a different way. It does it in a way that kind of elevates the art form that really draws on how the music connects to the animation and the narration. And I think that we're really seeing kind of, you know, what did the people want Disney to do next? They were very clear. We didn't like the live action. They didn't quite get that message, I think mostly just because of money. Choosing Cinderella was part of, okay, let's get rid of the live action. Let's go for these beloved characters. Let's embrace the comedy, the terror of these things that these reviews were really kind of loving in this, you know, arguably one of the most successful, if not the most successful package film from this period. Yeah, and I think that's also borne out in this film's legacy. So, you know, it has a 94% uh, critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, a 71% audience score, 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb. It didn't get its own theatrical re-release uh, in part because of uh, the two pieces often airing on television that we'll talk about in a minute. They were shown separately as part of the Disneyland TV series, which started in 1955. Wind in the Willows was shown during the first season. There's a really interesting thing that there's a 14-minute animated prologue of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow that recounts the life of Washington Irving which sounds familiar to me, but also I 
can't say that I've ever actually seen it because it's never been on a home video release. I did some digging on YouTube and the Internet Archive to see if I could find a version of it that's that was out there, but I haven't. If you do know how to get to it, please tell me because I would just be very curious to see that 14 minutes of animation. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow was released on its own as a 33-minute featurette in 1963. In 1978, The Wind in the Willows was re-released to theaters under the new title, The Madcap Adventures of Mr. Toad. And then The Legend of Sleepy Hollow becomes this Halloween classic because it's it's included in the Halloween Hall of Fame in 1977 and Disney's Halloween Treat in 1982. And Disney's Halloween Treat is a huge repeated for years and years and years that whole that whole programming block would get rerun it has some other cartoons in it it has the chernabog part of fantasia in it and so that i think is where a lot of this a good chunk of this legend of sleepy hollow version sort of lives on is people thinking of it as this halloween classic that is part of this package that is like i mean at least the sort of overlap between like kitschy, spooky Halloween Twitter and film Twitter that I, I'm on loves Disney's <laughs> Halloween tweet. And then, you know, there were parts of this that were cut down for home video release. In the case of Legend of Sleepy Hollow, they really just cut out the sort of live, quote unquote live action like bookcase. The, a, a few like newspaper articles, you know, there's, there's a few pieces that are cut from Wind in the Willows, I think just for like TV time more than anything else. It got its first complete release as The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad in the UK in 1991 and the US in 1992 when it was released on VHS and Laserdisc. There was another completely complete release on VHS in 99 as the last title in the Walt Disney Masterpiece Collection. And then in 2000, it appeared on DVD for the first time as part of the Walt Disney Gold Classic Collection line. It was also released on Blu-ray with Fun and Fancy Free as a double pack, uh, which I do own. It did later get its own standalone release exclusively to Walmart stores, and it was part of the launch. It was one of the, the launch titles uh, on Disney Plus back in 2019. Another piece of the legacy that I actually think is really important for Sleepy Hollow is that at the time that he was a Disney employee, this was a big thing for Tim Burton. This was the version of Sleepy Hollow that he grew up with. Uh, and was first introduced to the story. According to Tim Burton, he, quote, always liked how spooky it was. And in fact, the cartoon is probably inspired for me lots of things. Of course, Tim Burton goes on to make his own adaptation of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow in 1999 with Johnny Depp. Kind of turns it into a crime procedural, which it's a movie I actually like a lot, but I can't really say it's a good adaptation of the original story. Like you said, I think that one of the interesting things here is kind of how this inspired to people and how, you know, Disney's Halloween treat kind of set the image of what Halloween is. And I think that one of the other things that we see alongside kind of it inspiring people outside of Disney is that it is an example and a really kind of big moment in Mary Blair rising. And if you've been listening to all of our episodes I know we've been bringing her name up a lot. We will continue to do so because she is, you know, one of these big figures. But this film was one of the first Disney films in a while to be, you know, award winning. And it actually won the Golden Globe Award for Best Cinematography, specifically with color. And it's, you know, frequently broken down that in this period of time, Mary Blair was the queen of color, the queen of aesthetics and figuring out how we get all of the vibes in there. 
with these little details and with the shifting of tones. And so I think if we look within Disney itself, you can see this movie as kind of an inspiration of, even if the story itself wasn't super enduring, Mary Blair as an amazing color artist and cinematographer really kind of started hitting home. She was already one of Walt's favorites, but she really kind of starts stepping up after this, being put in positions that other women certainly didn't have after the strike. And I think that part of it is because this movie in both parts was so successful when you looked at the color and the aesthetics and the vibes that are her signature. Look, I'm going to say that this podcast in part is a stealth Mary Blair appreciation podcast. (laughs) I absolutely love her art style. I will sometimes just look at her concept art drawings just to make myself feel better because they are so colorful and fun and interesting and often either they're very like whimsical or they're very geometric like she works in a couple different kinds of styles that I always really enjoy and the color is just incredible the things that she does with different tones within the same base color the way that she pairs different colors together I, I just find it her art just incredible again like I feel like this is a movie that people don't necessarily talk about as a feature film like as the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad but it does have a pretty big presence in the parks all things considered and I think again like this is one where the individual pieces have a bigger legacy maybe than the whole feature release does in Florida Magic Kingdom in the Liberty Square area there is like a refreshment stand theme to the Legend of Sleepy Hollow which is also built to look like Washington Irving's house, actually. it's in- The architecture is inspired by that. Whenever I'm there, I stop by at least once. It's one of my favorite places to get breakfast in the park in Magic Kingdom because uh, it's really it's pretty easy to get to from the entrance, and they always have, like, Mickey waffles and stuff. There is a Toad Hall restaurant in Fantasyland at Disneyland Paris. And then, of course, there is Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which was an opening day attraction both in... Disneyland in California and Disney World in Florida. The one in Florida closed in 1998 to make way for the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which is kind of ironic because that is the next package film, as we mentioned at the top of the episode. So it's kind of funny that they swapped out one package film, Dark Ride, for another. There was a big campaign at the time to sort of save Mr. Toad. A lot of people are very happy that it's still operating in Disneyland. When it closed in Florida, they put a statue of Mr. Toad in the graveyard outside the Haunted Mansion as like a little like Easter egg tribute to the ride that, that used to be there. The ride itself is like a tiny bit controversial. So you you get into a motor car, you know, it's a a kid-friendly ride, but it does move a little bit. It sort of whips around corners more so than some of the other ones in that style. But the last segment is that you are in hell. <laughs> like, you turn a corner... There's an effect where it feels like there's an oncoming train. And then you go through a set of doors and there's a bunch of like flames, uh, like cardboard cutout, painted like cardboard cutouts of flames uh, and little demons with pitchforks all waving at you. Uh, and you go through the little like hell scene and then boom, you're back and the ride is over. And so it makes you feel like Toad has died at the end of the ride, which is also different from what happens in the movie. It's very weird. This falls under Disney likes to scare kids. <laughs> which I, I really enjoy. And, it, you know, it, it's a ride worth riding in California, especially because anytime you can ride a 1955-designed 
Disney ride, I think is kind of a special treat at this point. The characters also appear in different parades. There is, uh, especially the, the Headless Horseman uh, shows up during the Oogie Boogie Bash at Disney California Adventure. The Headless Horseman also shows up during Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party at Magic Kingdom in Florida. So there is definitely a tie into this movie in the parks. And like I said, in a way that, that feels sort of organic and special. Uh, the Headless Horseman thing is cool because it is a dude riding a real horse. I haven't seen it in person just yet, but I've seen video of it. And it is like a full-size horse with a, you know, headless costumed rider. One of my favorite things, this is such a like stupid nerdy thing. Whenever I am showed a newspaper article in a TV show or a movie, I like to read the non-featured articles because they have to fill the page. Even the featured articles at a certain point, they have like one paragraph of relevant text and then they either do like the lorem ipsum or just like complete nonsense. But I, I always really appreciate a movie that goes ahead and adds detail and there are different stories. And so one of the things that I noticed in this, I didn't pause to read all of it, but I was definitely paying attention is that as we see kind of the newspapers popping up telling us about what's happened to Toad, most of the non-featured articles are about death. (laughs) There's specifically one that stood out to me that talked about two people uh, dying after being struck by lightning. There's a few others that are just like, five dead, obituary for this person. I have no idea why, but this is my directive to you. Go look in the movie. You'll see it... It's not all of them. There's definitely distinct headlines for people dying repeatedly. And all I can figure is that that was connected to one of the scenes of the 47-minute version that were cut, uh, which perhaps explains why they go to hell in the ride. Because it really doesn't make any sense. I I fully admit I didn't read the book, but I did read the Wikipedia page for the book. There's no indication Toad goes to hell. So I feel like it has to be something that we're missing, something from those like 20 minutes that were cut. The the clue, the Easter egg that I kind of latched onto is those newspaper articles randomly talking about people dying everywhere. I do love the gag that the last newspaper headline we see about Toad is just the bottom right corner of the newspaper. And it's like, Toad case closed. He's now serving his lengthy jail sentence. <laughs> like, and it's like, the 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 quote unquote the article is about as long as the headline, which I just think is a very like it's a very funny sight gag because it's just like the this very bottom corner of the newspaper after talking about all the appeals and and court proceedings that have happened on Toad's behalf. But Megan, what what were your like overall thoughts watching this movie in full for the first time? Because like I said, for me, this is like an annual watch. So I've I've seen it too many times, maybe. This is one of the movies that I think I liked more when it was done than when I was watching it. And that sounds really bad. Not like in the sense of, oh, thank God it's over. So specifically for Sleepy Hollow, I felt like it took a really long time to get to the point. Because, you know, especially as somebody who knows the Headless Horseman is kind of going to be a big part of it. It drags on for a while talking about Ichabod liking food, basically before slowly going into the courtship and how all of that builds up. I feel like afterwards, it makes sense that you need to kind of get the Headless Horseman probably wasn't real and how that connects to 
what did or didn't happen to Ichabod afterwards. During, I just kept going like, why do I care about him eating so much food from his students' mothers? Like this was a a, a long thing that kind of stretched out. So I, I had some issues with that. I will say there were some great gags in the non-super high-tech animation. Personally speaking, I think my favorite thing from any of the Disney movies we've watched so far was when Brom got hit with the top half of the door. And instead of having like his full face, it was just like two X's for his eyes and like a dot for his mouth. Because I'm sure that saved them a lot of money, but it was also just a really hilarious moment for me. Having seen it all, there's there's some really, really great moments that I would want to watch again. The exposition to me is is a little slow. I can't imagine if it had an extra 15 minutes telling me a biography of the author. It's complicated. I feel like I enjoy talking about it more than I necessarily enjoyed watching it. It could be very well that the repeated viewings sort of help with that, because then you come to enjoy more of the the stuff that seems boring at first. Like I definitely, as a kid, like I really only remembered the sort of the party sequence and, and the end chase scene. But I think, especially as I've gotten older and like I said, I've watched it more, I find so much humor in the setup. I also wanted to ask you if you think that in the Sleepy Hollow segment, that food is actually a metaphor for sex and that Ichapod is like going... <laughs> Because podcasting, of course, is a visual medium. Megan just made a face. Like, <laughs> she was, I could see, I don't know if that was a good face, a bad face, or just a surprised face, but she did not expect me to say that. That was a, yeah, I was not expecting that. Is is Ichabod sleeping with every one of his students' parents, or, or mom specifically? Though, he really likes the food of, is his girlfriend's dad. So maybe, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I was not expecting that. (laughs) It's like played up in this, like, it's a little scandalous that he's like spending all these, all this time at their houses. And he like has this voracious appetite that he can barely control. Like, I don't know. There's, there's something there, but either way, it's still very funny to see a character who is like clearly so thin and like almost scrawny and lanky looking just like, Packing away more food than is humanly possible. Like, I do think as a sight gag, it works really well. You know, I... I... (laughs) (laughs) I I hope that doesn't get edited out, because that probably explains the look I gave better than anything else. Yeah, that was not a metaphor that I had come up with, but I think that it definitely could be. I think there's also some metaphors in the first half about what Toad's various manias are. To me, it kind of seems like he's he's like getting high and running off doing crazy things. And one thing that stood out to me a lot visually is that Toad getting motor mania is the same animation that the snake from the Jungle Book uses when he's like hypnotizing people. So I feel like there's something going on with like Toad is is being influenced by uh Illicit substances of some sort. So yeah, maybe this mostly family-friendly feature is all about drugs and sex. I guess that's that's entirely possible. I think it's certainly a valid reading. And I think watching the past few times, the one of the Willow segment, 
Toad's like, you know, his mania about the horse and cart, and then his motor mania, and then the end, you know, sort of punchline of him flying this very flimsy looking airplane with a horse on it. Because that thing looks like a toad could like conceivably fly that pretty well and safely. And then Cyril is there, and I'm like, that's not gonna that's not <laughs> gonna end well. But it sort of reminded me of the the neurodivergent people I know and how they talk about hyperfixations and how like they will get super deep into a topic super quickly and then two months later they will never think about it again. I don't think it's intentional because I don't even think the word hyperfixation existed in the 1940s when this was done. But I it it just made me think of it watching it now, sort of that echo of how we talk about things like uh, attention deficit disorder and things. You know, I, I do really enjoy the gag of Toad inhaling the fumes of the motor car. I think that's that's really fun. I I think the the animation in the sort of like end battle with the weasels at Toad Hall is done really well. I like the the other winky visual gag I like is that, you know, he's clearly dressed as a bartender when we first meet him and then when he shows up in court, he is like decked out in like a full on purple suit. You know, his hair, like, he's, like... Wig. Yeah, and he's, like, twirling his mustache and everything. I just think that's a it's a really good sight gag, and, again, like, sort of sets up the deceit that's going on underneath the whole thing. I really do enjoy that in the court scene, you know, you, you hear the story of, oh, Toad didn't steal anything, which the narration says that he would beg, buy, or... And then they don't say steal, but it's very clear that that's what was intended. And so the the court scene, you hear the lovely story of, oh, he's just swept up by it. And he was willing to make this huge trade and all of that. And you're going, okay, is, is this just your buddy lying for you? And then the kind of twist at the end that like, no, this is exactly what happened. As much as that is a complete deviation from the source material, it's got a good kind of zing to it. I think both of these shorts do. And that's one of the cool things. I I think the setup is a little slow. The the kind of, see, I told you so, I just made a stupid deal and was framed uh, alongside, you know, oh, I, I wasn't crazy. There was definitely a horseman and it's almost certainly Brahm. You know, there's these good, like, moments that make the audience feel kind of smart to have figured out the the secret i i think goes really well uh with both of these and with how the characters are really larger than life which builds the plot twist up in a really good way you know i think one of the other things that stands out for this and you know we talked about it a little bit but this is one of the few times where i feel like there is sort of that new england vibe especially in animated disney you know, we talked a lot about in our last episode about, you know, Disney's love of the Midwest. And I sort of think of him as this Midwestern figure, but like it really does feel like a very New York, New England autumn, which is one of the things I love about it. I actually like all of the character designs. Brom Bones really has that feel of like the small town bully where like he's the biggest guy in this town, just like Katrina sort of like quote unquote the town beauty, but like they're really not anything special in the grand scheme of things. And they aren't shown to be that way. Like this feels like a story about sort of regular people. And then it really is that last segment after Ichabod leaves the party that like is really what makes this so special and one of my favorites. And I really like the, 
callbacks to Snow White fleeing through the woods where there's creepy trees and, and eyes and things. But the, the whole sequence where the horse gets caught on the gravestone and the galloping sound is made by the cattails hitting a log and then Ichabod goes a little nuts <laughs> when he's like laughing, laughing at himself for being scared by it and, and that sound or whatever. And then the horseman laughs. And all of a sudden that scene goes from like comedic and silly to terrifying. And it's, it's such a great turn in tone. And then like from that whole sequence, like it feels like it could be its own really well done silly symphony because there's, there's no dialogue except for the horseman's laughter and some of the narration from Bing Crosby. But it, it has all that sort of visual storytelling elements that I, I love so very, very much. And I really like that the this adaptation is less ambiguous than the original in terms of the identity of the horseman. Because Irving plays it as very much like, well, we don't really know. Like some say this and so, you know, some say that. And here, not only do we get the the sort of Brom Bones gets the happy ending and this being maybe the only Disney animated movie that where the villain quote unquote wins, but it it the way the narration sets it up, it really is trying to tell you that Brom Bones is the Headless Horseman. And I, I just think that's a really fun choice. I believe this is also the origin of us picturing the Headless Horseman with a jack-o'-lantern in particular. So Irving just mentions a pumpkin. Jack-o'-lanterns were not a tradition that was in America at the time that he was writing. And so merging the pumpkin with the jack-o'-lantern really creates the the modern icon of the Headless Horseman that we see over and over again in every other adaptation that comes after this. That is absolutely kind of the image that defines this movie for me. Actually, I don't know. I kind of like the first segment better than the second segment, especially visually. I just think there are some better gags. I, I personally think that the like character design of Angus McBadger, which also just love the name, the way that like his hair is like styled in a way that you just you feel his character in how he's drawn. You know, despite all of that, if I was to think of like one image for this movie, it is the jack-o'-lantern head flying across the bridge. That is like the image that defines it all. If what you said is true, that is really cool that this is that iconic in originating that as our view of what this character should look like. I love it coming sort of, you know, almost breaking the fourth wall and like coming at the screen. And I think it's one of those things that like, it's really effective on TV. I would love to see this in particular in a theater. I actually, as we're recording last night, I actually got the opportunity to see Fantasia in the theater, which I had never seen before. And what was really interesting about that, just to, t- just to have a brief digression, is that it really felt like a concert. It's like it felt like I was attending a concert with all the musicians, sort of like the live action stuff of the musicians coming in. And they did like the intermission where the musicians go out and have their little jam session. And I thought of you when they brought out the soundtrack. But the, you know, seeing that on the big screen for the first time, it, it was just interesting, like what segments really worked better and i think that opening you know takata and fugue segment like worked so much better for me in the theater than it usually does at home but i really someday would love to see that jack-o'-lantern flying at my face in a theater 
that that's a goal but if there's any movie that we have seen so far but would actually benefit from being 3d it's this movie i feel like you could see toad on that you know rickety little plane kind of zooming out into the audience you could see that jack-o'-lantern literally get thrown at you i feel like there could be some really great moments because it is so effective as it is I feel like, thankfully, we are mostly past the age of let's 3D everything. There are always those few movies that really do benefit from it. And I feel like this is absolutely one of them. If it got re-released with like a 3D lens, just to a couple spots, I don't think it needs much of it. It would just add a couple of layers that just really cemented in your mind as something you can't ever really forget about. I'm glad that you didn't hate this. <laughs> I, I was preparing for you to be like, oh yeah, it was fine or whatever. But this is one of those movies that is just very near and dear to my heart. And so anytime I get a chance to advocate people seeing what, what I see in it or try to help them see what I see in it, uh, I will always take that chance. So wrapping up our Warren Packages season, the second season of our podcast, like I said, as is our now official custom, uh, just doing our own way to recap the season. Megan, what was your favorite movie that we watched for this season? And just to remind our listeners, this list includes Saludos Amigos, Victory Through Air Power, The Three Caballeros, Make My Music, Song of the South, Fun and Fancy Free, Melody Time, So Dear to My Heart, and The Adventures of Ichabod, Mr. Toad. Thank you for reading that list. I was going to do that as a way to stall having to answer this question. You know, I looked at the list and I don't know why, but my gut just says victory through air power, which <laughs> I don't think is anybody's choice from this period. Yeah, I, I have no reasoning for that. One of the things that I wanted to say, specifically knowing that you love this movie, is that I don't hate this movie. And I think if I had watched this movie just on its own, I would have enjoyed it. I think there are so many wonderful things that come from us watching these in sequence. There are so many interesting things we can note. But I think the downside is I keep looking for it to get better and better and better. And when it is just good instead of amazing, I think for me, it just is automatically a bit of a letdown. Kind of like, uh, apparently Pinocchio is my favorite of everything we've watched, because I just remember when I turned it on, I could go, wow, they have really stepped it up. And I feel like my, my problem with this movie is that at certain scenes, I just was left feeling like, wow, they really stepped it down. That being said, I will probably tell other people that this one is my favorite. Uh, it makes much more sense for this one to be my favorite, but my tired brain after however long we've been recording says victory through air power. It's also a much more accessible answer to be like, yeah, my favorite from this from this one is, is one that like you're going to have a lot of trouble tracking down to actually watch. <laughs> so you'll come off as less of a Disney hipster if you say The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which I will also say is is my favorite from this season. But if I had to pick a second favorite, I actually would pick Fun and Fancy Free. Even with the annoying ventriloquism that really bothers me, I still just love Mickey and the Beanstalk. And I find Bongo more and more charming the more times I see it. Bear slapping included, perhaps. (laughs) 
And then for least favorite, I'm going to exclude Song of the South from this as an obvious least favorite because that film is reprehensible and indefensible in my in and I think in both of our opinions. So I will say I think ultimately the one I'm going to go back to the least here is probably Saludos Amigos. I think it's the weakest. Like and then I would have said so dear to my heart, but after learning all that stuff about Marceline and Walt Disney's personal connection, I'm like I should probably watch that again. <laughs> So I think I'm going to say Saludos Amigos just because I do think it's actually the weakest of any of these package movies overall in terms of quality and and like especially the step how big of a step forward Three Caballeros feels like in comparison it kind of also feels sort of like the most redundant of these. I think that I'm kind of going to go along a similar vein. So I will say with looking at like most and least favorite my problem with this this is going to sound so so stupid and and kind of sad but to some extent I kind of forgot which individual shorts were in which of the package films because we've seen so many and there's so many little bits I feel like you know there are some things that I definitely felt as a whole were lacking in Saludos Amigos I feel like it didn't have the frame story that a lot of the others did my least favorite short is probably actually from the Three Caballeros I know that that's objectively a better movie, but I I just, I, I really am kind of disturbed by the Donald Duck chasing random women on the beach scene. So I just, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to say probably between those two, you know, there's, there's all of the fun cultural problems of them, but also just they went some weird directions and I feel like they did a lot of really great things. And many people will argue that Jose Carioca is one of those great things, but I just, I don't know. I I struggle with the Donald that I am confronted with in these two movies. That's very fair. I, I, it's not on our list, but I did actually want to ask you if there was a particular short or segment you wanted to call out from any of these package films beyond the two that we talked about today, which I think by both being about a half hour long, do have a lot more strengths and, and story than a lot of the other ones. I mean, for me, I really still love All the Cats Join In from Make My Music. I think that's really fun. And the Benny Goodman music is so energetic and it's so modern and when i mean modern i don't mean contemporary i mean like modern in terms of like modern you know modern art modern dance like it has that sort of very minimalist kind of feel to it in the designs which i really like and then i also wanted to call out i will be the person who just really enjoys the pecos bill story (laughs) i think that's really fun it made me laugh it's one of the the only times where the I think the live action introduction to an animated segment actually works really well. Like I said, I think the whole thing is fun. Is the story sexist? Definitely, but kind of looking looking beyond that and taking that into account, I think there's a lot of fun animation in there. I really like the design of all the Southwest stuff. Uh, again, I I think it's overall more more cute than problematic, and that could just be a, a me thing. I don't know. That one didn't super land with me. I did find myself while watching this film wondering if when Toad is wearing the dress and his ball and chain is like a fake bustle. I did I did think about that's 
segment and like if he falls on it will he just accidentally bounce to the moon <laughs> so it certainly had its impact i'm not sure i i loved it but it it stayed with me which is pretty impressive i think that probably the one that i loved the most and i'm i'm trying to look back at all of the things we've done and make mine music does not stand out as like the best movie to me it had a lot of kind of low points but I do think that the Peter and the Wolf segment is alongside in Melody Time the B segment. I feel like Peter and the Wolf and Bumble Boogie are what I wanted Fantasia to be. I feel like they do a better job really bringing music to life than Fantasia necessarily did. And so I think that those two segments in otherwise kind of meh movies are probably my standout shorts. Those few glimpses of Walt's vision of Fantasia are definitely sparks of magic for me. That totally makes sense. And those are ones where I could, you know, if Walt's original vision about, you know, swapping out different segments of Fantasia, those are two that I think would actually fit in really well and do have really high quality to them. I, I do like them a lot. And I, I'm glad you got a chance to talk about Peter and the Wolf again, because I remember that one being a real standout for you when we did that episode. And then I wanted to throw out there, you know, what is something that you learned about Disney, whether Walt himself or just the company in general, uh, that sort of stood out to you from this season? I knew a lot of the, like, film history of the 40s. I didn't necessarily know as much the animation history. I guess the thing that stood out to me was how much of a train wreck things were. And this is going back into season one a little bit, but, you know, between the the strike and the war and Walt just kind of losing his confidence in himself and his vision, I think that was really interesting to learn about and to see how it, in my opinion, made some of the best and the worst of Disney. Um, I think that we had a quote earlier saying that Ichabod and Mr. Toad showed know the the highest highs and the lowest lows and i feel like the war and packages period is kind of that personified by that quote as well personified is not the correct word there but you know you'll forgive me i i think this period was a period of chaos and experimentation and a bunch of really talented artists who didn't have as much direction, who didn't have the clear focus that Walt had in the first few features. And I think that that led to some really amazing compositions, some really fantastic artists. I think that we've talked about Mary Blair a lot, but one of the things that I wanted to point out about Ichabod and Mr. Toad in general is if you look at the credits, you can definitely see the creation of the Nine Old Men that, you know, you're really cementing these big figures that are going to be everything about Disney. I think that for me, learning all of the chaos, both in the country and specifically within Disney, really gives an appreciation for why some things worked and why other things went very, very wrong. Not that we are excusing the things they did very, very wrong, but just kind of to get a better understanding of why the company could have such amazing things and such problematic, uncomfortable, and or boring things like Song of the South. 
It's a really interesting period. I will just completely agree with everything that you just said. And that's why I think this period is so interesting because it is kind of all over the place and that there's just a bunch of stuff being tried. And I think, I think that we'll see in our next season some more experimentation, but some more certainty around the direction that things are headed. You know, especially as we get into the 50s, Disney has sort of its second golden age after the 30s and 40s in terms you know, early pre-war era, I guess. So that'll be that'll be interesting to sort of track. For me, it was finally digging into the World War II stuff. I had been wanting to watch Victory Through Our Power for years and years at this point. And then finally digging into that, watching a bunch of the shorts, getting more of the context around it. That made me appreciate that period even more and having had firsthand knowledge of it. But that combined with like tracking the overall trajectory of what's going on at the time and what Walt is actually trying to accomplish in this period is is really fascinating. I think that sort of segues into the, our last topic of wrapping up this season, like this is not something, this is not a, a an era of the company that's particularly looked upon fondly, I think, by anybody, <laughs> whether in the company or film historians or whatever. Again, it is kind of this sort of like, they did all these amazing things all the way up through Bambi. And then like, they made some other things that came out, you know, and then Cinderella really is sort of the Cinderella story of like returning to form. And when we're going to talk about Treasure Island, like that's a much more popular movie, I think, even in, in its day than either Song of the South or So Dear to My Heart were. And so we're talk- we'll be talking more about genre pictures and, you know, adventure stories and, and, and different things and eventually television and stuff. So I think there's a lot of interesting things to come, but this is sort of that fallow, dark period of Disney's history but it, I do think as we went through, it was very interesting how many of these, at least pieces of these movies live on, either in the theme parks or, you know, Mickey and the Beanstalk being kind of its own segment that gets played on TV and gets its own VHS release or the two, you know, pieces of today's movie that live on in a Halloween special and get a ride at Disneyland when it opens. And so I think there's there's pieces of here that get carried through, but it's not really thought of as a great era for the company overall. You know, when we were looking at the questions from the close of season one, the last question was something to the effect of, is are all timeless classics? How do you feel about them today? And that question was just so far from usable in this period. And I think that, you know, to some extent, that kind of makes the story of Disney so much more interesting. I mean, it's great to be able to thrive all the time, but it's also really impressive to keep your company going. There was a major strike and they got rid of most of their workforce. The biggest war to happen in at least modern history or at least Western modern history happened in the middle of this and they kept going and they found ways to make it work. You know, to some extent, while I don't know that any of these movies are going to be favorites for me, the knowledge about Disney and the things they tried and various players behind the scenes throwing pieces together, that's what's really cool to me. That's really why I wanted to sign on to this project to begin with. And because we are recording this on the evening of July 6th, for our Swifty fans, I am 
naturally thinking about Taylor Swift and the re-release of Speak Now and ironically have a song lyric from one of her other albums stuck in my head. And uh, I guess to sum up this season and this period of Disney history in the words of Taylor Swift, long story short, they survived. And there's something really impressive and interesting about the fact that they did and the different methods they used to get there. I think that is extremely well said. And then I have one last question for you, spawned on by this. I actually didn't know that you were a Taylor Swift fan. (laughs) I'm a relatively recent convert in the grand scheme of things. But the question I would ask you is, do you think Mary Blair would like Taylor Swift? Oh, God. Um... (laughs) I think that this is going off of no good knowledge. I think that Mary Blair probably would have had a similar connection with Taylor Swift that I did, which was, you know, some of the songs resonated, plenty of them didn't. And then Folklore and Evermore came out and those were such poetic works. They seemed like a new art form. And I feel like that's very accurate to Mary Blair of like, I'm trying things. I you know, did something that really worked. And then I left the company because I wasn't feeling appreciated. She went through her own reputation era. And then coming back as this stronger artist who was able to stand up for herself in a company that did not make it work and be a powerhouse. I guess what I'm saying is apparently Taylor Swift and Mary Blair are the same person in my mind. Some weird reincarnation going on there. So by that standard, yes, I do think she would like Taylor Swift, but I think she would have liked Taylor Swift later in Taylor Swift's career. I think that's a perfectly fair assessment. And if it wasn't for her artwork being so intrinsic to Alice in Wonderland, I would maybe say that you could call Marion Blair Miss Americana. But (laughs) but no, I, I love this revelation. I saw the era store a couple months ago at this point. So I'm glad that we found this, this secondary through line that we can track and you know, lofty goal. Eventually, we need to get Taylor Swift as a guest on the podcast. That's obviously what needs to happen. <laughs> okay, but my favorite thing about that is that Taylor Swift's fans know that she listens and reads the weirdest things and will randomly show up on your doorstep. So I think two or three episodes ago, I said if Disney wanted me to make their movies for them to let me know. So I guess uh, we're going to end this episode with Taylor Swift. If you would like to join us and discuss your similarities and differences with Mary Blair and your favorite Disney movies, we have some special episodes lined up, but we will happily put in an extra one for you. Absolutely. We will make the time. Taylor, you you will know where to find us when Megan reads the outro here. (laughs) So for all of our listeners and fans and in our wildest dreams see i made a joke with our name and with taylor swift our wildest dreams taylor swift as our avid listener next time on dream with mind and heart be taking a week off because sometimes we we need sleep and to watch all of the other movies and tv shows that are amazing and interesting but after that we'll be diving into the legacy of mickey mouse as we've been doing this project mickey mouse is such an important disney figure And we barely talk about him because he's not much of a figure in the movies and especially not at this time. So it'll be great to really go into Mickey Mouse and really his impact from 
the origins of the company to today. We will also be doing an episode covering the shorts of the post-war era in a second bonus episode before kicking off season three, Adventures in Literature, with the incomparable, the important, the often misunderstood Cinderella. In the meantime, any of our listeners, anybody with complaints, and again, Taylor Swift, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, dreammindheart, and on Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela.